pretty common nowadays to see girls playing contact sports, which have been historically reserved for boys. But what happens when a boy wants to play on a girls' sports team? We could take it slowly This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On this week's show, we'll talk with Sarah Fields, professor of communication at the University of Colorado in Denver, about the intersection of law, gender, and sports. Then, we'll talk with Nola Aga, associate professor of sport management at the University of San Francisco, about the impact of public stadium subsidies. This week's show is coming up next, after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Sarah Fields already had a law degree when she entered the University of Iowa's American Studies PhD program. She knew she wanted to use her law degree, but she didn't know exactly how. So, I show up for orientation and my advisor tells me what classes I should take and then he says, well, you got an elective. There's this class called the History of Women in Sport, and you were an athlete, and you're a woman, and we want to scout out how this professor is to see if we want her to be an affiliate in the, in the department. And I took the class, and it changed the whole course of my career. I did not realize you could study sport and get credit for it, and I had no idea you could make a living at it. Yeah, uh, it, it does, like, sur- on the one hand, surprise me sometimes when I still think about, like, these cool people like yourself who do this kind of stuff, but then the work that you do does uh, resonate with a lot of people. So, The whole time I was working on my PhD, my mother kept saying, couldn't you just be a lawyer? You're never going to make a living and pay off your loans with a, <laughs> with a sports degree. Well, take that, Mom. <laughs> uh, you should talk to my mom as well. Uh, <laughs> so your book, Female Gladiators, details the history of how women and girls uh, use Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause to carve out a space in contact sports, traditionally reserved only for boys. Although there were significant victories won by these girls, where are these battles at today, and are there any youth sports that continue to exclude girls? There are a number of youth sports that still exclude girls. Uh, The law has now been made pretty crystal clear that under the Equal Protection Clause and then under the use of Title IX, you must allow a girl to try out for the boys' team if there is no comparable girls' team, uh, and you have to treat her the same as you would treat the boys, so you can't have different standards or or elevate the standards for the girls. But if you look around at high school teams, it's still unusual when a girl plays high school football. It often makes national news, particularly if she wins homecoming queen, as happened last week, I think somewhere in Mississippi. And I have been at institutions, uh, public institutions, the universities, where they have said that women can't even try out for the football team. And that is simply flat out illegal, uh, but people don't know, and the women who are being excluded don't participate. They don't try, and they don't file lawsuits. Hmm. Well, um, outside of that, I guess there are no lawsuits pending in that realm, but... There actually is. It's the reverse. Okay. So one chapter in that book looks at what happens when boys try to play girls' Girls sports, sports. field hockey particularly, because for the rest of the world, field hockey is a guy's game. U.S., it's it's women and girls. And so every once in a while, you'll get usually a, a guy who's either grown up or spent time abroad who comes here and wants to play field hockey. Sometimes they just play want to play because they've had sisters. So in about 1993 or 94, the courts ruled that you could exclude boys from trying out to make up for the history of sexism in sport. So kind of an affirmative action thing. Uh But in those decisions, they said, 
this isn't going to last forever. At some point, girls are going to have more opportunities, and we'll have to revisit this. And there is um, a lawsuit that has been filed. It hasn't been heard by a court yet in that same jurisdiction by a boy who says, it's time. You should let me play field hockey. Wow. Are there any other significant sports issues making their way through the courts right now, um, other than obviously the the Kaepernick collusion case? Is that one the biggest, or are there others that we should know about? So I think the collusion case may be the biggest in terms of its significance to American society as a whole and its interest to the American society as a whole. There are a whole bunch of small local cases that matter a great deal to the communities that are involved. Uh, Title IX requires that you basically treat boys and girls sport equally. And the colleges and universities have had these battles, but the high schools and the middle schools haven't. And so there are a number of lawsuits for high schools in which, you know, the boys' baseball field is immaculate, they have dugouts, they have a cool scoreboard, everything's stunning, and the girls play on gravel that's five miles away. And so those kinds of lawsuits are happening all across the country. If, going back to the Kaepernick collusion case, um, will there be legal ramifications outside of just his case in the NFL? That's a really good question. I think it will send a message. Every time the major leagues, whatever sport it is, get nailed for collusion, there's a ripple effect across all of professional sport. And it the idea is to teach them a lesson. Um, right now, Kaepernick is going through the mediation, I think it's mediation, not arbitration, and I'm not sure if he's waived his right to a trial. But if it goes to a trial and he goes for monetary damages, the Sherman antitrust laws and their subsequent enforcement laws say that whatever damages you're awarded, they get multiplied by three. So he's probably, if he, he's probably lost $100 million at least in terms of salary multiply that by three. And that's just his actual damages. If a jury gave him punitive damages, that number could go even higher. And yeah. big money losses are uh, significant, and more importantly, they teach a lesson. Yeah. It doesn't seem like the NFL wants to wants to settle, and it is, I think, more about message than the money for them because they have a lot of money. <laughs> I agree. And I also don't think Kaepernick wants to settle. And the nice part about his Nike contract and his endorsement deal is he doesn't have to settle. He's not broke. Yeah, that's true. Um, Your other book, more recent one, Game Faces, uh, details how some prominent legal cases involving athletes has significantly influenced our legal understanding of things like privacy, defamation. Can you talk about one of the stories from that book and why it mattered outside of sports? Sure. Um, I like this story. Uh, So Warren Spahn is arguably the best left-handed pitcher in the history of baseball. He was pretty remarkable, but like most pitchers, he started off a little bit slowly. He got signed to a major league contract when he was 17, uh, bounced around between the different minor levels, spent a couple of days in the major leagues, and then got drafted into World War II. So he schleps off to Europe, where he serves in an engineering brigade in Germany, sees combat, Um, He's not a frontline soldier, he's building bridges, but he is injured, uh, gets shrapnel in his foot, uh, gets a Purple Heart for being injured in combat, returns to the U.S., goes on to have this amazing pitching career. And so he's pitching in the 1960s when it was common for writers to write what they call juvenile biographies. And I read a ton of them when I was a kid. And they'd basically write, okay, here's a story about your hero. And they'd make up dialogue and they'd attribute thoughts and it was super fictionalized. And a couple of them were written about Spawn. Well, one of them was so fictionalized that they gave him a bronze star. 
and that's for heroism. And Spawn was pissed. He said, I didn't, I wasn't a hero. I don't deserve a, a bronze, I didn't get a bronze star. Don't attribute it to me. And he sued uh, and had five different trials to stop publication of that book. And eventually he won. The court ruled that you couldn't basically make stuff up about a living person and make up and attribute dialogue and actions. You had to rely on fact. You had to, you had to have evidence. And uh, the author had argued that kids wouldn't read stuff that it was evidence-based, that it would be boring, and that to compete with television, you had to kind of jazz it up a little. Court didn't buy that. So Spawn wins, except that he didn't. Uh, I started researching this long after his death, and I kept running across reference after reference, including in his Hall of Fame obituary, that he'd won the Bronze Star. And that's because even though publication of the book was ceased, 10,000 copies had already been printed, sold, and distributed. In fact, I bought a copy on eBay a couple of years ago for like five bucks. Um, and truth doesn't get in the way of a good story, and there's only so much you can do to control it. But I like the fact that he's one of the only people in history to sue for um, having something make him look too good. Yeah, it certainly says something about his character. Um... So asking you to look into the crystal ball a little bit here, but what do you see as potential issues um, that might come up in terms of protests in this year, upcoming years, um, that aren't necessarily being talked about as much right now? That's, a, that's another really good question. I think what we're going to see is a continuation of uh, anthem protests around racial inequality because we have done nothing really to solve the racial inequality problem. So that will continue, and I think athletes feel a little empowered uh, by Nike's choice to stand behind Kaepernick to continue to make those protests. Uh, the thing I think that we're going to see next that'll be kind of interesting, and it's going to start, it's already starting at the youth level and it's going to expand, is trans athletes and their rights and their opportunities. Sport is one of the last places with a gender binary and trans athletes challenge the very notion of a gender binary. And so we may have to rethink as a society how we deal with sport and does it need to be divided based on gender or are there better ways to make divisions? Yeah, that's something that certainly is not gonna be resolved in the next year, but uh, something to think about and definitely will become an issue. Um, so athletes have often been discouraged from activism saying it's, it's bad for business, whatever the arguments are. Um, but if the Nike ad campaign with Kaepernick is successful, do you think that might change? I do. Uh, I think that there'll be a certain number of companies who particularly want target audiences between, say, ages 14 and 34. Uh, that demographic appears to be a little more liberal, and they appear to be more sensitive to social justice issues. And if I were a company targeting that audience, I might think about supporting athletes who speak out. Oftentimes when people do respond to athlete activism negatively, they say, just just stick to sports. Um, but Shut if, up and dribble. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if athletes are protesting conditions within the sport itself, whether it's, you know, labor issues or um, things like that, it kind of seems like they may have a better chance at controlling the dialogue and responding to criticisms like that. Um, so like women's soccer protesting the, the pay differences between them and the, the men's national team. Do you think that's the case? Yes and no. It doesn't get the same kind of attention when women protest and complain, in part because fewer people pay attention to women's sport, so they fewer people notice. Uh, WNBA players wear t-shirts about social injustice, and it gets much, much less press than when the NBA players do the same thing. 
Uh, but if you go back historically, Billie Jean King and other tennis players in the 60s and early 70s fought to create the WTA and to separate them from the USLTA. And they got a lot of backlash. The USLTA was largely run by men, and they were they immediately banned all of the women from all tournaments. And there was a limited amount of social involvement because it didn't get covered very well. But what involvement there was was really vitriolic and just as nasty. The, the tennis folks cared just as much. It was just that most people didn't care about much about women's tennis. Going back to the topic of the, the NFL protests about uh, police brutality and racial inequality, people have discussed the, the relative indifference that most white players in the league have expressed. Um, do you think it would make a difference if some of those big-name uh, white players forcefully took a stand and really joined in? I do. I think it is important whenever we face injustice of any kind that it is not simply the people who are being oppressed who stand up, but that others stand with them. We saw it in the 1960s uh, civil rights protests when uh, white students went south to participate in those. We actually see it more with the women. The WNBA players were both black and white who wore t-shirts. Uh, the entire Indiana Fever team, both black and white players, took a knee during an anthem. Megan Rapino of the U.S. National Women's Soccer Team took a knee. She's white. Uh, I've been personally a little disappointed that the the white guys, particularly in the NFL, haven't done more. Uh, Chris Long has done remarkable things, yep. donated his salary, uh, speaks up, stands up. Uh, but there's only been one white guy in the NFL who took a knee, to my knowledge. And I would like to see more of them with their with their fellow football players yeah uh reminds me of a, a martin luther king quote you know the in the end we'll remember not the words of our enemies but the silence of our friends you know yes it makes a difference um on the topic of concussions in football what is the current legal precedent for liability for both the nfl and the ncaa as it pertains to former players who've suffered from cte uh, okay, so all legal liability is based on the same basic principle of tort. You have to establish that the uh, person who did the harm or caused the harm had a duty to the person who was harmed, that that duty was breached, and the breach of that duty resulted was the proximate cause of an injury. And so the challenge for athletes is the proximate cause. Uh, and that's often in law school, we call it the but-for test. But for this, this wouldn't have happened. And so what the NFL tried really hard to argue was that the CTE damage, there was no evidence that playing in the NFL was the proximate cause of CTE. And we don't know exactly what causes CTE. We see the very strong correlation of CTE in the brains of many, many retired football or deceased football players. Uh, but the NFL, the NCAA, and all the way down to Pop Warner are still arguing that we don't know that the blows to the head caused it. They see correlation. They're arguing there's no causation. I think most scientists think that that strong correlation implies a degree of causation, but there are likely other factors involved since not every football player, every person who gets blows to the head develops it. Uh, and so that's going to be the challenge at the lower levels. The NFL has settled the one lawsuit. Uh, and I think there's a billion dollars that they're being kind of jerky about distributing. But I think there are more lawsuits coming. All of this can happen at the state level. So every state that has a professional team, there are class action lawsuits, in my, to my understanding, in almost every state going after the NFL as well. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, how certain do you have to be before we establish, uh, you know, and accept that 
the cause is, uh, you know, getting repeated blows to the head might cause brain injury, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it took us a long time to decide that tobacco might actually cause cancer uh, because the tobacco companies fought really hard to say, oh, correlation, not causation, who knows, can't prove it. Uh, but eventually we bought it. Hopefully we go a little faster on this one. Yeah. So much of the emphasis as it relates to concussions seems to be about football. Should we be just as worried about sports like soccer, hockey, lacrosse? I think we should be worried, and I say that as somebody who played soccer for almost 40 years and somebody who played rugby for five years. I've had a lot of concussions, so I think about this a lot. I do think we should be concerned because the question is about subconcussive blows, and we know that you get tons of those in football, but folks who are serious heading specialists or even just practiced a lot of heading in soccer may also be at risk. Uh, at the high school and college level, but particularly the, I'm more familiar with the high school data, we see lower rates of concussions uh, in everything. Football's by far at the lead. Then we see women's soccer, uh, and then ice hockey shows up. There are some who argue that a, a single concussion is, is too much of a risk, but a concussion can happen from all sorts of things. We can't always avoid them. You can fall off your bike. Uh, I got a concussion once by just walking into a staircase and knocking myself backwards against concrete. And, you know, unless we walk around with really good helmets all the time, sometimes they're going to happen. But we should try to figure out how we can minimize it so that that occasional walking into the staircase isn't your sixth or seventh concussion. It's your first. That makes sense. Well, thank you, Sarah, for coming in uh, on the show, and thanks for coming to Grinnell. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Sarah Fields is a professor of communication at the University of Colorado in Denver. Her work includes the recently published book, Game Faces, Sports Celebrity and the Laws of Reputation. Check out links to her work on our website, grinnell.edu podcast. Have you ever seen headlines in the news citing the economic benefits of sports stadiums? Oftentimes, those studies are conducted by the league or team building the stadium and have questionable legitimacy. I sat down with Nola Aga, Associate Professor of Sport Management at the University of San Francisco, to talk about these stadium subsidies and their actual economic impact. Proponents will argue that a public investment in a stadium is not just an expenditure by the public, but an actual investment. And if it's an investment, it, it will then generate some sort of positive return. And that's one of the things that most researchers question the most, is if there's actually some sort of return on this investment, or whether it's just a very real cost to the community. What are the common things that they cite as positive externalities of building stadiums? So there's a common claim of there being economic impacts. There will also be claims of economic development, that sometimes stadiums can serve as a catalyst that will inspire other building or other businesses to move to the area. Uh, there's claims of wage growth, of job growth. So they, they really hit the spectrum in terms of what they, they claim. And do any of those promises pan out? And can any of these stadiums kind of point to tangible evidence of these lofty promises that they make? I know in Milwaukee they're just um, building, and well, it's actually already been built, but a new arena for the Bucks to play in. And, you know, they've made this whole district around it and have kind of made these claims that it's going to revitalize that area um, and bring new life into it. But how do, you, how do you put the numbers to that? There's a lot of different ways. So one of the first things you can do is it's, it's important, I guess, to note that it's, it's different for every city. 
And so it's possible that maybe that area would have been redeveloped anyway. You could go back, you could look at building permits where people are already, where developers are already buying land in that area. Uh, so you can evaluate some of those claims. So maybe the idea is maybe that development could have happened without the public expenditure on a new facility. The other way to look at it is in terms of sales tax revenues. So you can see as a whole what's going on in the city. If there really is more expenditure, if there's more money coming in, then you can look and see what's going on with your sales tax. One of the things that we often see is that a new stadium will simply redistribute spending. So the Bucks played there before. So it's not like people suddenly are spending more than they did before. They're simply shifting from one facility to the other. And then the other thing to consider is, is jobs. And actually, this is one of my favorite headlines that I saw just recently. It said, Bradley Center to cut 650 jobs you know, when the arena uh, closes. And then it said, semicolon, um, new arena to add 620 jobs. Right? And so when you tear down an old arena and you build a new one, there's, in general, no net gain. I mean, in this case, what seemed like a small net loss. But So you can look at it in terms of jobs, income taxes, all these different things. Um. <laughs> and then when we talk about the negative externalities of, of building these stadiums, what are we talking about? So that's where you, the, the, the common ones are noise, pollution, traffic, all the annoyance of construction. The externalities can vary depending on where the stadium is located. There's some research that looks at property values. Do people really want to live near arenas and stadiums? Does it actually drive down housing prices in areas around? So the externalities can be related to the event itself, or it can be related to the facility, or it could be related to the construction of the facility. Focusing on the economic impact of these stadiums, who are they affecting? Is the effect spread across, you know, taxpayers equally, or, you know, on whose backs are these stadiums being funded? That's a great question. So when you look at the number one driver of the value of a professional team, the number one reason that the value of that business increases is because they get a new stadium. And so the Vikings are a great example. They, before the U.S. Bank Center opened, they were worth $1.6 billion. The public built a new facility. public spent about $800 million. The next year, that private business, their value increased by 38%. It went up to $2.2 billion. The next year, another 9% to $2.4 billion. So in a two-year period of time, that $800 million public cost was fully capitalized into a private business. And that's taxpayer money. So that's coming from the city. And if the city isn't generating that money back through whatever sources, whether it's lease payments or new sales or property or income tax, then that's a cost to the public. And as we know, things like sales taxes are very aggressive. And so it's often the the poorest members of our society that are really hurt by these things. The Vikings did get a little bit better in the past few years, but I don't think they got a billion dollars better. <laughs> so what do you use when you're trying to think about counterfactuals in studying? You kind of hinted at this, um, but how do you how do you really gauge what would have happened in a community had there not been a new stadium there? So instead of answering the question related to stadiums, I'll answer related to just the presence of teams themselves. So strikes and lockouts are a really great natural experiment. And so in, in the past, we've looked at research. Uh, there's been Whenever there's a strike or a lockout, we'll collect the data and we'll look at that and actually find that in most cities, when the professional team is not playing, economic impact either is the same or economic activity is either the same or it increases. 
which means the presence of a team is actually depressing academic activity. And that boggles most people's mind, but it is consistent with research both during strikes and lockouts and not during strikes and lockouts. Wow. So given that that's the case, um, why do these stadiums continue to be financed? It's a great question. That's the one that everybody wants the answer to. A big part of it just relates to uh, humans, it relates to our incentives, it relates to politics, it relates to the motivations of the people in power. Do you want to be the mayor that lost a beloved team? Or do you want to be the one that saved it or that kept it? And a lot of that then comes because these leagues are cartels and they artificially reduce the supply of teams. So there are more cities that want a team than there are teams. And so because of that, cities are competing with each other for the right to host these. So in lieu of public financing of these stadiums, uh, how do you suggest that they be financed? Just on the, the NFL makes a lot of money, for example. Do, do they have the money to pay for these stadiums themselves? I believe that every team owner has enough money to pay for a stadium themselves. If it was financially worth it, for them, they would. And we see lots of examples of teams that do. For example, the uh, Golden State Warriors right now are spending a billion dollars are building an arena and some associated development. The question is whether the teams have the motivation to do so, and they don't. When there's public money to be had, they don't have the motivation to do it themselves. And if they did have to purely do it themselves, they would find other ways. They'd find creative financing methods, or maybe they wouldn't get a new stadium every 20 years. Maybe it would be every 30 years. Maybe we just wouldn't see the turnover. Maybe we'd see renovations instead of brand new ones built. But they would have to do the math solely on their own revenues and expenses, as opposed to relying on those public subsidies. Now, is there scholarly consensus on the impact of subsidizing sports stadiums, or are there are there some studies that you know cite positive benefits? Is this like, I guess, comparing it to kind of climate change science, where the academic community might be totally or almost totally in unison uh, in their understanding, but, you know, they're sitting there kind of banging their heads against the wall, wondering why we're still behaving in the way that we do. Also a great question. So it's, it's one of the rare things that economists can agree on, which is, for the most part, these are going to be bad for the public. Now, there's exceptions. It's very possible for a community to negotiate a good lease with a city where they are actually obtaining enough revenues, whether it's a ticket fee or whether they're getting the city's getting the naming rights. It is fully possible for a city to have developed the right formula so that they can pay back the debt that they took on for the construction of that stadium. It just doesn't usually happen. And at the end of the day, that's sort of the financial argument, which is, yes, cities, it, there is a potential for cities to not be harmed by this. Whether there's any sort of economic development or economic impact from that, that's a different story. And that's where most people agree, not really. Can you think of a particular example that was, that was a really bad investment for a community? Or that maybe, maybe you can think of more than just one, but uh, <laughs> highlight, highlight one of them. The list is about a mile long of, of the bad <laughs> deals, and it's, it's pretty short for the good ones. Cincinnati is a really good example of a city that has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on baseball, on football. They're now spending on a major league soccer stadiums. They've famously had to sell off a, a hospital because the city was in so much debt. Um, Phoenix and Glendale, those are other really good examples. 
they've had to raise taxes, they've had to cut city services. We're seeing the exact same thing in Cobb County. They recently built or helped build a stadium for the Braves. Same thing. They're consolidating closing libraries. They're trying to figure out how to pay for the police. They're having to raise taxes to do that. They're also cutting city services. So there's an awful lot of examples. Yeah. Some of your studies have done, uh, and you particularly have emphasized the impact of stadiums uh, and teams in minor league baseball. Can you give a brief picture of the minor league landscape and how it might differ from major league stadiums? That's a great question. Minor league baseball has most of the same features as the major league sports in terms of the public subsidy game, in terms of the the fact that there are more cities that want a team than there are. And so you still get these these leases that tend to be really bad, and these agreements between cities and teams that tend to be really bad. So on the financial side, we see cities being harmed in the exact same way we do in the majors. What we find that's different, though, and what I found that's different, is if you try and look at some of the variables that we use to measure this economic impact, in this case, income, if you, or you can also look at sales tax data, but I've actually found that there's a few places where we start to see a positive effect. And it's different. It's different than major league sports. We don't see that in major league sports. And the question is why? And that's what we're still trying to figure out is why. Now, one of the ways is maybe that you're inspiring locals to stay locally more. Maybe there are more people coming. So most of these are small towns. You can imagine them in the rookie leagues, for example, are in the Pacific Northwest. And there's an Appalachian League that's in these little valleys in Appalachia. Maybe people have something to do in town now. Uh, maybe they all want to come to that area. We're not really sure in the AAA leagues, we classifications for minor league baseball, we, we see some spot positive effects as well. That might be because these are the up-and-coming cities of the world. These are the teams that sometimes, or the cities that sometimes have, they sometimes have a, a professional team already. So Columbus, Indianapolis, Buffalo is a good example. Um, they don't always, but they're those cities that are on the verge of maybe becoming the quote-unquote like big league city. And so maybe the people in those cities appreciate the highest quality of baseball that's around. Maybe Salt Lake City, for example, has high-quality basketball. They have an NBA team. And so if people want the highest-quality baseball product, they might be uh, drawn to the AAA league because that's the, the most that they have. So we don't entirely know why, but there do tend to be some different effects at the minor league level. Another one of your, your studies looked at the effect of team name changes on revenue, which I thought is pretty interesting. Are there any teams in professional sports who have changed their name and seen a dramatic increase in revenue? Or on the other hand, are there any teams that maybe you think should change their name? <laughs> um, you're going to kill me on this one. No, I, I can't think of good. There's, you know, there's 220 minor league baseball teams. There's a lot. And they change their names and their location all the time. So I, I probably can't come up with any on the fly. There's some gems out there. <laughs> there really are some gems. And there, there certainly are. I mean, if you look at the list, minor league baseball puts out a list of the top 25, I think it's the top 25 grossing minor league baseball teams every year. And it's usually teams that have recently switched their name to something cute and funky. And so people kind of flock to buy that merchandise. It's it's great in the short term. It, it really works out well in the short term for teams. Yeah, I know the, the Cedar Rapids Class A affiliate. Um, the Colonels. The Colonels. That's <laughs> yeah. a good example. That's yeah. I don't, I don't think they're going to change their name anytime soon. They used to be the Bunnies, believe it or not, the Rabbits. Yeah, they they started off as, I'm not going to remember, 
but I know at one point they were the bunnies and at one point they were the rabbits. That stuck in my mind. I'd, I'd say the colonels is a good switch for them. <laughs> um, so here at Grinnell, our sports teams don't necessarily produce revenue, but they are a big part of the, the Grinnell experience for, for people. So I wanted to get your insight on our team name, uh, the Pioneers. Should we consider rebranding, changing our team name, or uh, should we stick with it? I'm going to say you stick with it. There's yeah. a lot to be said for history. There's a lot to be said for cultural references. There's a lot to be said for not changing your brand name on a regular basis. Well, thanks for the input, and thank you for your interesting uh, insights into the, the economic impact of stadium subsidies. And You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Nola Aga is a professor of sport management at the University of San Francisco. Links to her most recent work are available on our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast. By the way, Aga mentioned the Golden State Warriors' new arena, which they're paying for with $1 billion out of their own pockets. It sounds great. But she told us later at her talk that the construction of the stadium caused the planned high-speed rail route in San Francisco to alter its path, costing the city, you guessed it, about a billion dollars. On a lighter note, we mentioned the Cedar Rapids minor league baseball team, now the Colonels, formerly the Bunnies. I looked it up, and their original name was, drumroll, the Canaries. I checked out some of the other funky minor league baseball team names, and here's a few of my favorites. The Savannah Bananas, the Albuquerque Isotopes, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos, the Richmond Flying Squirrels, that one hits close to home here in Grinnell, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, the New Orleans Baby Cakes, and the Toledo Mud Hens. The list goes on, but you can check out our website for links to more of these quirky names. On the next show, we'll talk with two of the speakers from this year's Scholars Convocation series at Grinnell. We'll talk religion and pop culture with Catherine Lofton, a religious studies professor from Yale University, and the politics of resentment with Kathy Kramer, a professor of political science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski and Audioblocks. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu, find us on Twitter with hashtag allthingsgrinnell, or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians. Grinnellians.